Okay, another episode of Junior Resource Investing. With me today is Justin Reed, who is the CEO of Troilus Gold. Troilus Gold Corp is a Canadian-based junior mining company focused on the systematic advancement and de-risking of the past-producing gold and copper Troilus project towards production. Standard disclaimer, as always, this is not uh, investment advice, entertainment purposes only. Please check YouTube for full notes. But Justin, it is good to see you again. I'm glad to have you on your show. How are you? Great, Matt. How are you this morning? Doing well, and I appreciate you taking your time to be with me here. So I always start out the same way, right? Kind of a little bit of a boilerplate approach here for the first 15 minutes or so. But easiest question right off the, right off the hop, 30-second elevator pitch, right? You got 30 seconds to sell somebody on Troilus. What do you tell them? Uh, pretty simple. Uh, Troilus is a past-producing mine, operated for 14 years, produced 2 million ounces of gold and 70,000 tons of copper in a great jurisdiction of Quebec. Uh, mine shut down because of economic reasons uh, and really lack of work. We acquired the mine privately in 2017, came to market in 2018. We have drilled 340,000 meters. We've defined 8.1 million ounces of gold, new resource right around the corner, um, which is going to be able to back uh, approximately a 20-year mine life, producing upwards of 300,000 ounces a year. Low-grade bulk tonnage. 35,000 tons a day. But what we're certainly benefiting from um, is that inherited infrastructure that we have. Uh, at today's inflationary environment, we have between 350 and 500,000, or sorry, 350 and 500 million US inherited infrastructure. So certainly in these increased capital times, um, it gives us a bit of a foot forward. Yeah. And I mean, the things that you mentioned, there's lots of reasons. I mean, I'm a bit of a sucker for development plays to begin with. And I think there's just a lot of positives that uh, that Trillis has that I think kind of gives it that inside edge that it might make it to production. Right. But I guess, yeah, I mean, there's lots of kind of departure points there I'd like to cover, but maybe let's just, yeah, let's get the, the basic stuff out of the way before we get too deep into Trillis itself. Do you just want to do a brief overcap of your own history? We were discussing how we're both uh, stubble jumpers before before airing here. But uh, how did you end up CEO at Trillis? Well, uh, you know, being a prairie boy, Matt, it gives you instant credibility, I think so. <laughs> um, uh, geologist by training, uh, undergrad in Regina, uh, master's in Toronto, MBA in Chicago, um, worked for Saskatchewan Geological Survey and then for Comanco and kind of global exploration as they were taken over by tech. Um, after my MBA, I went to work uh, for Sprott Securities. I was uh, their head mining analyst. And a partner at the brokerage firm and then went on to uh, run Global Mining at National Bank of Canada um, and really got into the investing side then, certainly uh, raising capital, structuring teams and, and looking at opportunities. Um, in 2013, I joined as president Selden Gold, which was a Shuindo asset in Peru. Um, it was well advanced. We finished the feasibility, got it permitted, uh, about to break ground and start building it. And then we were taken over by Rio Alto in 2014, which was then taken over by Tahoe, which was then taken over by Pan American Silver. Uh, but Shuindo is still in operation today. It's a great asset. Um, kept the core of the team together. Um, through 2015 and 16, looking for other opportunities. Uh, always knew of and had been, I covered in Met Mining, um, understood the Troilus asset. And it was always a bit of, um, I guess, uh, um, an outlier for InMet. They were a global base metal company um, in the mid 80s, late 80s. They were looking 
to get the gold multiple um, as a base metal company. And back in those days, the multiple was real. You know, uh, gold companies would trade at 20 times cash or, or two times nav, where base metal companies were kind of six and six. And so they, they, they partnered uh, with Karadison, they bought it, they put it into production, and they immediately threw it to operations. For 14 years, um, it produced profitably every year, um, but they never replaced the reserves, and they never spent a lot of money on exploration, and mainly because their focus was elsewhere. They were building La Cruces in Spain. And ultimately, they found and were ramping Cobra Panama, which is now the sixth largest copper mine in the world. And actually, it was Cobra Panama that facilitated the failed merger with Lundin Mining, and then ultimately the hostile by First Quantum. That transaction closed. Um, Troilus was on care and maintenance because of lack of reserves. And First Quantum was looking to exit Canada. And at that time, so call it 2016-17, Investors, Canadian dollar was strong. There wasn't a lot of focus on low-grade bulk tiny gold. If there was, you're, you're watching the Arctic, you're watching Detour, you're watching the ramping problems that they had. And so this asset kind of flew under everybody's radar screen. We went in, we signed a two-year option agreement uh, with First Quantum. We agreed to spend a million privately and um, to see if there was an opportunity for this resource to grow or for there to be a, a reopening scenario. You know, jump forward to today, the answer was obviously yes, we came to market, uh, we've drilled like crazy. You know, 8.1 million ounces and growing, 340,000 meters of drilling. And, uh, you know, we're now looking at a generational scale asset. So it's not that Inmet ever did bad work, it's just that Inmet did bad, um, no work. And, um, we were able to keep a good team together and, and opportunistically uh, jump on that. And we had the right shareholders from the get-go who were able to support us through the whole thing. I mean, you've certainly been aggressive. I mean, yeah, 360,000 or 340,000 drilled. Uh, I mean, 260,000 since your PA in 2020. Uh, I mean, you're on, you know, you're six months away from an FS. So it's totally been, it's this kind of telescoped, uh, this this process towards getting to a construction decision is a very very uh, you know sh fast track shall we say so I mean yeah you know it, definitely you're not gathering moss I suppose right um, just again just kind of getting through before we get to the meet, the kind of nitty gritty share structure what do you have out who owns what right institution retail can you give us some color on that yeah, one yeah uh, there's two twenty seven out um um I'm just looking at a presentation that's up on the website. It says warrants are 24 and a half and RSUs are 14 and a half. I think those are both cut in half, actually, because we had a bunch that have just expired in the warrant tag and the RSUs as well. So um, a lot less there. Um, we're about 60, 65% institutionally held. Um, largest shareholder, um, not counting Sayona Mining which is a billion dollar lithium producer in uh, Australia operating in Quebec. They own about 9% of the company. Um, investment in Quebec, the case, FTQ, Sidex, Franklin. Um, so, so big Quebec Inc., all of the government-based institutions um, have supported us almost since day one, which is absolutely key to what we're doing. And then the large gold funds as well. Um, management and insiders own about 10% of the company. And uh, then retail kind of accounts for, call it, 
I mean, yeah, you mentioned, I mean, having, I think it's fit, like you say, from your slide deck, I'm just going from memory here, but is it 15% is owned by some an arm of the Quebec government, which again, you start looking at reasons why a project will or won't get built. Having a provincial government as, as a primary shareholder obviously seems like a pretty big boom. Um, do you just want to tell me, you know, what are, what are insiders in for average cost basis? Can you kind of run through what, you know, you and your executive team have? Yeah, I think I'm the largest, uh, well, I know I am the largest individual shareholder. I think I have about four and a half million shares um, in my account right now. And then through RSU, there's exposure. Um, my average cost base is probably about $1.10. Um, I've been buying stocks since day one. I've never sold a share with the exception of uh, RSU tax impacts, which which comes up kind of once in a while, but but that's not really selling. So, well, and that's actually maybe that's a good uh, segue here, for a good transition moment because you know I I went on went on real to, uh, retail boards and just asked for some some questions from your following, and a couple of people came up just asking about management compensation and burn rates, right? And I think you know you, you know when I looked into your management information circular, I mean it was I think it's three ninety six was your base uh, salary, but and then maybe just discuss after that, uh, yeah the the burn rate and comp yeah anyway it's, yeah do you want to just discuss sure. your compensation yeah. um so jamie horvat on my board runs our compensation committee and he's one of the biggest shareholder or fund managers kind of in the gold world it certainly was um we brought in an external consultant um from a tier one accounting firm and we put we put in a fully baked uh comp plan that was uh, voted on by shareholders and agreed um now Rather than options, we have RSUs. And we put that in place because ISS and Glasslois, the proxy servers for which the institutions follow, say best practices in this world of ESG is to have uh, an RSU program rather than options. So we put that in place. Um, you know, that the large numbers that you see, um, my comp is based at the 50% of our peer group. And there's always opportunities to outperform. Um, and if you look at really the big fluctuation, it's always stock-based comp. And so though this is in, my, in the last circular, my stock-based comp, um, that was given to me three years ago, and it was priced at that time, or the, that was the, the, uh, the price of them at the day that they were granted. And so really, you know, the ones that just exercise now, I kind of can't came in at 50% of that, if you will. But don't think of them as free stock because it, the dollar value in the exercise accounts as uh, revenue to me or to the individual. And as such, I'm taxed at 51% of that. And so for the first few years, certainly the big ones, I, I would pay all the tax and take 100% of the stock. Um, but certainly over the last, last while, um, you know, that tax burden gets pretty large on a continual basis. And so what we do is we put a pool of that stock together and we sell it in one cross. Um, and that's before the individual even gets those shares. So CRA takes it before we even see it. So it shows up as a sale, but if you actually look at everybody's position as a net gain, and it's merely a tax adjustment that has to be done. And yeah, I think that's it's valid. Right? People maybe look at the headline number and, and and you know people are concerned, but yeah, two thirds if not more of of what would be your, your compensation that comes in the form of RSUs and not and not dollar salary, right? Yeah. Um, and, then, so, and, then, and then the STI, you know, the cash bonus, is based on uh, KPIs. And as a CEO, 
75% uh, of my KPIs are based on share, share price performance, uh, benchmarked against the GDA, GDXJ and, and a group of peers. And so you know, we're always six months back looking when you see that because we're a mid-year mid year end. Um, but you know, certainly based on all junior gold share performance this year, you know, there'll, there'll be no bonuses this year for sure. Yeah, and you, you discussed I guess a couple of days ago you released this and uh, you know drilling is done for the incoming FS and we're kind of getting close to that conversation I think is what I'm looking forward to the most here. I just love discussing a good feasibility study uh, or good good economics, but uh, drilling is stopped. So I mean that's thirty million. I mean this is, I, I repeat what I said earlier. Very aggressive thirty million dollars a year in exploration drilling in the last couple of years. That's gone. Uh, so obviously burn rates going to be coming down quite a bit. But you also mentioned kind of in passing that you're looking at other cost cutting measures just to decrease that burn rate as you transition into you know you're starting to turtle a bit to create your feasibility study. Can you just look at talk discuss a bit just briefly about you know your cost cutting measures? Well, I mean we've already done it in like the last three weeks. Um, so so first of all. You know, we set up our infrastructure to drill. Remember, when we started the company, we had 1.4, 1.5 million ounces underground. And now our last resource were 8.1 million ounces, of which 80% was open pit, and a new one coming incredibly shortly. And then, so the market will see that. Um, if we drilled, um, you know, if we drilled 25 or 30,000 meters a year, uh, like a lot of companies, it would take us 10 years to get to where we are now. Mm. And so, yeah, it was very aggressive, but name another company that has essentially added, discovered 10 million new ounces in three and a half, four years. Mm. It's, it's almost unheard of. So yes, it was aggressive, huge build uh, or huge burn. We had up to seven drills turning at times, mm. which requires, you know, 10 geologists, hmm. uh, 10 to 14 techs. Plus what everybody needs to realize is that Troilus is not an exploration camp in the middle of the bush with a couple tents and some drills turning. We are an active mine site with 40 kilometers of roads to maintain, um, 20 pumps going around at tailings, which is actively monitored, um, a full camp, uh, helicopter um, depot for, for when we're slinging drills, if we have to do that. We have a 50 megawatt substation, a power line coming in that needs to be maintained. And so the value of that infrastructure, which I said yesterday, or, or earlier to you, sorry, um, has to be maintained. And if we don't maintain that, then it falls to disrepair and is worthless. So um, a big part of that burn is just the 10 techs, you know, and the average tech probably makes $120,000 a year um, just to maintain those. And it's a huge value to us in the long term. And we and so, so I, I wouldn't change that at all. But cutting down. Um, yeah, we're just finishing. We had one exploration rig regionally that we just shut down, sent the helicopter home. I think our camp's gone from 50 or 60 people down to 7 to 10 now. And um, and we uh, we laid off the majority of those people who were contractors to us or hourly employees, um, kept the core team that we need going forward. So, you know, that's that's the savings of upwards of $2 million plus a month. Um, 
we made some uh, management adjustments this morning and we have a few more to go. So, so you know, we've cut our burn by uh, easily 60, 65% in the last three weeks. And, 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 it's, and it's not that we're forced to do it. Our balance sheet's fine. It's, um, it's the transition of the company. That stage of our work is done. We will always explore. We have a lot of great regional targets and we'll focus on those targets if they will add grade. We don't need more ounces. But if there's a grade profile that could be massively accretive to what we're doing, then yeah, we'll, we'll follow that up. But we are now in the permitting EIA development funding stage. And so it's kind of you go quiet while you go through all of the bureaucratic work and then, you know, and then we'll ramp up to 1,500 people when you have to build this. So it's just a normal evolution of, of the project. I say we're just running twice as fast as most companies. And I think that's not hot air. I mean, again, I mean, you're doing just not just, you know, head math, your napkin math, but 60, 70,000 meters a year. Yeah, it, it's not, it has been a very aggressive last few years since you took it public in 2018. I think you, uh, so what I wanted to talk about though was you mentioned it in passing here, you know, infrastructure jurisdiction, right? When I'm doing my checklist of reasons to invest, obviously these are big things for me. I love brownfields, right? Uh, it just it takes, it de-risks so much. And you say, I mean, you, I think, you know, one of your numbers that you advertise is $350 million in infrastructure left behind, free to take advantage of, obviously huge, right? The mill's gone, but obviously a lot is still there. Um, and then for jurisdiction, I, I, I don't want to spend too much time on this because I think people understand Quebec being preeminent, right? But for me, where you are, you're kind of in this Goldilocks zone, right? Where you're not so far out in the boonies where, yeah, it's FIFO and, and it's going to cost you an arm and a leg to get built. But then you're not, you know, right in downtown Montreal trying to build a mine either, right? That you're close enough that you can take advantage of substations and power lines and highway and all those things that the other mine that Troilus previously, the previous mine got built for you. But then, yeah, you're close enough and far enough that you have this, this balance. I guess maybe just, I mean, to ask you a question at this, I mean, What's just what sticks out to you working where you are, right? In Quebec, Shibugamu on Brownfield site. Maybe are there a couple of things that maybe you can point out, maybe that isn't obvious to retail investors that it would be a kind of a hidden advantage to where you are? Sure. You know what? I guess the first one is you don't have to get on. So, no, but I mean, if you were working up at Eleanor or going into Stornway, if you were flying into Raglan or a remote camp in the Arctic, um, or, or in the far north, um, you get on a plane. And the moment you get on a plane, your cost is ridiculous. Um, we are, I can drive you to our site on a highway um, in about an hour and 10 minutes from Shibugamu, which is a town of 8,000 people. It's a mining town. It's, an, it's, a, it's a resource town, forestry and mining. Uh, it's a hub to the kind of the southern James Bay. Um, there are commercial flights in every day. It is uh, well equipped. And also you have all of the benefits of that whole Baldor Abitibi mining structure because, you know, cat dealers, equipment dealers, uh, contract labor, contract mining, engineers, everything you need is within that. So. Um, for, for me, if something breaks down and I need to get it from Valdor, I can get it delivered by road that day. And then those kind of things 
really add up. And when you think about logistics of building a mine and operating mine, it has a huge impact. Also, when you're working where we are, we have really close relationships with the local communities and stakeholders because we're so close. And, it, and it's great because InMet did a fabulous job operating this mine for 14 years was the first IBA with the Cree that was signed as part of the James Bay Accord. It was a huge success. It was the basis for which all others have been kind of defined. Um, we work out of our offices, out of communities where they remember the impact this and the mine had. So again, for us, access to service and people um, in this competitive environment is awesome. Yeah, no, absolutely. So maybe I'll take a second. You, you, you touched on local stakeholders, right? And, and so... For me, you know, when I was doing my due diligence here in preparation for this 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 interview, you know, uh, Toilus takes that ESG component very seriously, right? It's something that you've you've built your your company around. Uh, you know, there are voluntary Quebec standards that you've adhered to, right? Um, and I, you know, I kind of feel sometimes in this sector, I, I kind of it, I feel badly because I think some people, and maybe not unjustified sometimes, because I think there are companies that kind of staple these things on as afterthoughts. But there's some cynicism around ESG, right? Uh, and I guess maybe what I'd ask you first question in this topic is just how do you justify your your commitments as a company to to ESG doubters or to people that maybe don't take that part as seriously as as Troilus does? What what would you say to them? Yeah, I, I mean, and you do see a lot of greenwashing, as you said, mm -hmm. you know, companies that say they're doing everything and it's kind of all lip service. Um, we really approached it from there's no choice, if you, if, if you will, we better do it right. Because unlike, you know, some companies, I, I never name names, but certainly, you know, we went into this saying we our plan is to build this mine or restart this mine. And so... Um, what do we have to have in place now to facilitate that later? And so obviously um, social acceptability is huge, right? Stakeholder involvement, so through the Cree and others, uh, we're a first company. We, well, we have our pre-development agreement signed with the Cree and when, as soon as the feasibility comes out, we'll have our IBA, uh, we'll start with that. The government is our largest shareholder. So when I throw all those Quebec institutions together, you know, Quebec Inc, if you will, um, they're making investment choices that as Quebec or as government entities that kind of transcend just plain return, right? It's about the viability of, uh, of the entity, the jobs and taxation it's going to bring in and the impact that it's going to have for the long-term for the community, the stakeholders and the environment. And so, you know, permitting at both the provincial and federal level is going to require us to be ahead of the curve on that. So we were the first company to have our Eco Logo certification that was recognized with awards. We're a part of the United Nations Global Contact and um, contract, sorry. And um, there's 17 driving forces on that, and, we're, and we are a chartered member of that first junior company in Canada to be. Um, and ultimately, that all funnels down to the ability to fund this project. Um, we expect funding from the Quebec government, right? If we don't meet their ESG minimum benchmarks, well, we're gonna go have to go out and have to get them and come back and ask for it. It's a delay. So we put we put it out when we formed the company and said we need to be ahead. 
we want to be permitted in a, in a timely manner with the federal government, um, especially with the current administration. We better make sure we're a leader. We're working with Tuplik Energy right now out of Montreal to put forward a zero carbon footprint going forward. Um, and ultimately, a lot of the funding will come from alternative sources. And a large number of our institutional shareholders are European. And the European institutions have some of the most stringent ESG requirements for investment, especially in the resource space. So not only is it the right thing to do, not only is it going to facilitate the timely development, um, it's going to facilitate the access to capital, um, but it's also going to hopefully differentiate us from those who perhaps aren't taking it as seriously as we are. Yeah, I think I mean the point you make is cogent, right? That rather than being reactive and you be proactive, and hopefully you can put those issues to bed before they ever become formal issues you have to deal with, right? But but to your point on burn, just just like maintaining the site is going or the infrastructure is going to add value down the road that might not be recognized right now, it comes at a cost. Exact thing comes with all of the SG protocols that we put in place. We have a fully SG team. Uh, it, it has a cost. All of these programs that you're involved in and certifications and everything else and the audits that come with them all come at a cost. Um, now, hopefully, the goal is that you'll be rewarded uh, as you move towards your ultimate goal. Yeah, smooth. The, the wheels turn more smoothly, right? Absolutely. Maybe, you know, you, you discussed Cree, uh, your Cree nation nearby. Mr. Sini, if I'm not mispronouncing it. I mean, obviously, it sounds like this is, I mean, Shibugamu, right? Mining camp sounds like local stakeholders. You said, you mentioned previously, you know, people remember the previous Troilus mine that closed 15 years ago or so and remember it finally. And also, I think I was reading your PA and lots of positive things were said about that previous mine where, you know, like the stoping walls were done well, there's no issues there. And the tailings pond has been, you know, last 15 years, it looks like it's been designed well and built well, which helps with stakeholder uh, you know, engagement, right? I guess, do you just want to discuss, Mr. Sinney, I mean, is there, you know, hesitation you have to deal with and, and kind of be proactive with? I mean, where where is the leadership with it in terms of their relationship with you guys? What's, you know, how much, what's going on there and, and what kind of attitudes do they have? Yeah, it's, uh, you know, the one thing I'd say about the Cree, certainly in Quebec, is um, how, how progressive and pro-development um, they are. Uh, Mistisney is a very um, well-run, modern community. Um, and uh, there's a lot of revenue in that community through um, royalties from Hydro-Quebec and through mining and through various other mines and through forestry and log logging. Very sophisticated uh, uh, management of, uh, of the community. Uh, we're on our third chief uh, during our tenure, and um, all all have been amazing. Straight shooting. Um, Troilus, about 20% of Troilus's historical uh, employment um, was was Cree. The majority were from Mistisney. And, uh, and when Troilus closed, the, those individuals went out to work at other mines around Quebec and elsewhere. Um, but the Cree are very... Uh, very family oriented. Um, we're the closest, call it industrial complex or potential complex to the to uh, the community, and so I think we're going to be able to get a lot of people back. Uh, one of our biggest challenges is is managing expectations. 
you know, when there was a past mine there and every family was somehow impacted positively, hopefully, uh, from the mine, um, it's hard to say, hey, you just don't turn it back on. You know, that we have years of work to do. There's an engineering studies. We're repermitting a new mine. There's a new EIA and all, all those places. So, yeah, we've had nothing. We, we, have, uh, we have two great joint ventures with them right now. Um, one's called MyCan. So um, uh, it's a joint venture between the local drilling company and the First Nations community. And, um, you know, we put in, uh, well, last year, uh, last year, directly and indirectly, uh, over $26 million went back to the Cree through our JVs. Uh, one is also an employment company that we've made, uh, where essentially all of our Cree employees are uh, are employed through the local community, and then those dividends are paid back to the communities as well and to our local stakeholders. So, lots more to come. We're we're working on various other joint ventures and opportunities for the First Nations. So we're obviously going to give them um, uh, first crack at at all the various things, but or various contracts and options. But at the same time, we're working with them now on training. Right. Just uh, it has to be commercial. It has to be service oriented uh, and it has to be sustainable for us in the long term. So we're working with uh, the community right now, putting those programs in place, which, again, is something that a company our size doesn't typically do. But it's part of our, our ESG and, and outreach. And uh, uh, it's win win both ways right now. I just, I mean, not to belabor the point because I think it's been made, but doing things right is expensive, right? I mean, I think that this, you know, that there's an opportunity for mining to develop a new reputation, right? By by doing things in a sustainable stakeholder kind of centric fa fashion that maybe if you go back to 1950, wasn't as much of a priority, right? And I think that comes at a cost, right? Okay. Um, maybe let's transition. Uh, the question is, what do I find you in the middle of? Actually, what I think is interesting, you kind of reference this, is that this is almost, you're in a transition time. I mean, yeah, within the last couple of days, you were officially done drilling for your upcoming MRE and upcoming FS. Um, obviously, you had the fire season delayed things for a bit for you. I mean, do you just kind of want to provide some color about where, where Twilis is, you know, on September 11th, 2023? Yeah, um, the MRE is uh, essentially, you know, I's are getting dotted and T's are getting crossed. Um, our our goal is to have it out um, within the next month, and I and I will will be able to do that for sure. And um, and uh, I'm really really pleased with the outcome. I like you know we don't have final finals, but you know we made a pivot um, uh, in November of last year when we discovered X22, and X22 has shown us just a remarkable grade profile that's significantly higher than the average grade of the rest of the mine. And if you think about it, in, in eight months, we've drilled out to feasibility level from discovery, a kilometer of, of uh, mineralization, which uh, is gonna have a big impact on the overall economics of this deposit. Um, because ultimately, you know, when you look at these low-grade bulk tonnage deposits like Troilus, but if you go back to ones we know like Malartic and Detour and others, it's not really about the uh, IRR that you see in the feasibility because ultimately, you know, it never turns out to be exactly that. Um, our goal, 
And any goal of a low-grade bulkized deposit should be to repay invested capital as fast as humanly possible. And the moment you do that, all that cash flow becomes free afterwards, essentially. And so when you look at what are the two most profitable mines in our industry right now, it's Detour Malartic. A low-grade bulk tonnage capital is repaid, and it basically becomes an ATM. Hopefully, trials will be no different. And um, so from our standpoint, that X-22 and parts of 87 have given us places where early on in the mine life, um, you know, we're able to put significantly a higher grade through the mill early. And that's just going to repay your capital faster. And then I think we're I think we're going to be able to accomplish that. Um, you know, I don't think the market's going to see necessarily see a massive increase in grade at Troilus. You know, we've drilled forty five thousand meters of three hundred plus, so the average grade isn't necessarily going to come out. What the bigger question is: What's your first four to five, six years going to look like? And if we can do that at a lower strip and a higher grade. You're moving less rock with more value. You're going to be able to expedite that. And the moment you do that, you drop it down to your cutoff and you push tons. And so um, we're certainly looking at the economic impacts of this mineralization. And um, the market's been seeing it. You know, this isn't a market to be rewarded for drill holes right now. Uh, certainly not something like the Troilus project. But um, I think that the headlines that the market has seen should give you a good idea of what this impact could be. Well, now we're kind of getting into what I want to talk about, and maybe I'll jump around here a bit based on what you've discussed here. But, I mean, development codes have been getting hammered, right? That, I mean, inflation, right, increasing increasing cost of, of, of production, and you're not seeing a dollar from increasing gold prices, right? So you can, you can understand why developed codes fairly or unfairly are just getting hammered in the markets, right? And what I, what I like to see, and I always find it so interesting because, I mean, how often do you see, I mean, there's a couple of things that I find curious about Trailist, but you know, typically economics don't get better from PFS to for, from PEA to PFS to FS, right? Usually you see kind of a downward trend. I think that, and again, I'm not not trying to carry water here for the company, but part of what I mean, I, as a as a as a private investor coming to your company, it, that that it is that I see lots of opportunity for a material upgrade in the economics, as you discussed with your kind of your mind plan around X22. I've got a list of questions here that I'd, I mean, we'll see what we do for time that I'd love to get into with you, but maybe let's just start with the mind plan. Is the idea here that X22 would be a starter pit and then that would be where you start or what's what's your plan? Can you just maybe, maybe rather than asking that specifically, maybe just discuss like what are changes to your mind plan you're considering versus where you were from 2020 PEA? Yeah, I mean, you know, a PEA, preliminary economic assessment, is really based upon inferred resources, um, plus or minus 35% accuracy, and really is used from a board perspective to say, you know what, we probably have a good project here, let's keep investing capital in it. Um, I think that, you, you know, the things that are going to certainly remain the same is the scale at 35,000 tons a day. Um, rationale for that is really optimization of the infrastructure that we have, that cost savings that we had. I mean, should this mine probably be running 50,000 tons a day? Probably should. Maybe you can suck some more value out of it at 50,000, but all of a sudden your CapEx just goes through the roof because all that infrastructure you have isn't sufficient enough. You've got to upgrade it. So we're kind of maximizing 
um, our infrastructure in light of certainly in light of the inflationary window that we're seeing. So the mine plan is not really going to change. Um, the the sequencing will probably change. In uh, in our PA, we started with eighty seven and some of the southwest zone. Um, now uh, we're going to be starting with eighty seven south, which is at surface and parts of X twenty two. Closer to the ultimate mill, where it's going to be laid out, higher grade, lower strap. So there's going to be some sequencing changes there. Um, mine life is going to grow. Our PEA at that time, we had an underground resource. So we were talking about, I think, a 13 or 14 year open pit that would then transition to like an 8,500 8, ton a day underground operation. And there was a big sustaining capital number that will come in in kind of year five or six. There's, there's no underground contemplated in our bankable feasibility. Um, in a 43-101 report, chapter 22 is always left for upsides and, and optionality, if you will. We're going to put that in chapter 22 for, you know, various options. But we're going to be looking at an 18 to 20 year minimum open pit at 35,000 tons a day. So we're going, we're keeping it super simplistic, um, no transition of mining method, no going underground. The optionality is there, and certainly at the bottom of old eighty seven, uh, there's some spectacular grade at the bottom of the pit um, and through kind of the old pillar. But uh, you know we'll get there later. I think that certainly in this market, also you know we're in a far better uh, commodity environment not equity value, but in commodity environment, um, you know, gold's holding 1900 incredibly well. Um, and I think that the prominence of copper um, within our deposit, uh, especially in the current environment and when the future outlook could play significantly greater as well. You know, 15, 20% of all our value is going to come from copper, which is, which is a really nice hedge to have. Yeah, and you're, you're making me I scroll down to some slide deck numbers that you've got up. I mean, yeah, what I like, I always like a conservative PA, right? I mean, people can go look at the sensitivity charts themselves for for inflation or for cost of capital or for for sustaining costs, et cetera. But I mean, yeah, your 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 base case was fourteen seventy five, and that gives you a post tax NPV five of five seventy six. I mean, you take it up to 1950, like you say, I mean, it, it, it doubles it. It doubles. The, I mean, that's, and so I love, I mean, I guess that's what you get when you have a, a low grade pit like this, right? But I mean, your, your NPV doubles to, if you're going from base case to today's gold price, right? And this is right. not, you know, yeah. So it's, it's, it's exciting that, you know, there's a lot of positives baked into this and I want to, yeah, like if we look at the reasons why it might get, why your economics might go down. Yeah. It's inflation, diesel's 10 or 15% higher than it was in 2020 sort of thing. Right. But I think there's a lot of reasons why the economics could be buttressed or, or lifted up from, from those kind of downward pressures too. And I want to go through those, but maybe I'll just ask you talking about a huge open pit. Uh, I'll just one question, kind of almost circling back to the ESG component. Any concerns or or, or maybe community, yeah, community concerns, or reservations about a huge open pit like that? Well, no, I mean we've got two pits there right now. <laughs> um, uh, Eighty-seven is three hundred fifty meters deep. J is about one hundred fifty meters deep. They're filled with thirty million cubic meters of water, um, and. You know, to answer your question, kind of by diverting from it, <laughs> um, we're permitted to dewater, 
and um, we have the pumps. We've done some preliminary dewatering, um, and that's after a full review of all of our stakeholders, including all of the Korean consultations. So. Really what the new pit is going to look like is basically putting 87 and J together and then kind of doubling the width of it and, uh, and pushing back. Um, it is a big hole. It's a huge hole, but, um, we're, we're disturbing disturbed ground. And so I think that the impacts of such of our operation are already well known and the remediation that was done by InMed and First Quantum um, was done very well, but also opportunities to do it better had been identified. And so with, uh, with our, uh, all of our stakeholders and partners, we've been able to put a really good plan forward. And so that, that's really exciting. And, um, yeah, our footprint as far as disturbed area within the mining lease isn't going to get a lot bigger. Good. Yeah. Well, then that's, and I get, that kind of answers a concern or question I had too, is what does a footprint look like? And well, excellent. And that tailings, you know, we have six and a half square kilometers of tailings, which is a huge asset. Um, it's only, it only has one lift on it right now. So think of it as kind of 12 meters high and just six, six and a half square kilometers up against um, quite a, a kind of a hill of relief on the back. And all we're going to be doing is lifting up that hill um, on a center line constructed, so full berm center line construction, which is you know best in class in, in the industry. So uh, it's going to be very, it's going to be a very safe um, uh, facility that has stood the test of time for the last twenty years. Yeah, I mean, circling back, the whole thing here is just all the advantages of working on brownfield and working from from previous infrastructure, right? I'm trying to be cognizant of time here. You've got a ride. You're going to Beaver Creek here right away, and I'm I'm your last uh, last chat before you go. So I'll try to be quick. But I mean, some some advantages, right? I mean, met work. I won't dwell too long on. But I mean, you've you've got you've improved your met to ninety percent recovery plus for gold and copper, silver from forty to eighties or ninety. So that's obviously a you know huge positive boon. Two hundred sixty thousand meters going into this. It was not in the last MRE. Could you maybe break down briefly? I mean, two hundred sixty thousand. I mean, this will be a good good math math game for you, right in your head. But uh, I mean, what is it? How much was infill? How much was step out? How much was kind of wildcat targeting? What, what where are you at with that? Very little wildcat. Um, it depends how you want to define X twenty two because X twenty two was a brand new discovery, right? Um, so so it was discovery. It was drilled off and inferred, and then it was infilled for measured and indicated. So um, I'm going to say if that was, uh, you know, 47. you know, I'm going to correct my math later after I hang up, but let's say, <laughs> uh, let's say 70% uh, was probably infill, um, and then 30% mainly on X22 was expansion. Um, but a lot of this infill kind of just kept pushing things out. So we would just keep moving down the system systematically, but we would drill it at uh, M&I spacing so that it could be used in the feasibility. And that's exactly where I'm going next with this. I mean, you know, people sometimes, you know, you, oh, infill, yawn, and you move on, right? But it, it, for a story like yours, it's actually critical, you know, moving those ounces from inferred to indicated and upgrading those resources is huge if you're trying to put it on fs on these numbers 
So with your PEA, you had 5 million equivalent ounces indicated, 3 million equivalent, roughly speaking here, right? Uh, inferred. Can you, knowing maybe you've got some material information you can't share with us, obviously, but can you provide some, yeah, just color or context or what are you hoping to see in terms of upgrading from that, from those numbers? Uh, you're going to see significant growth to the overall number. Hmm. And uh, you're probably going to see a very similar plus or minus ratio of measured and indicated to inferred. So um, let's just say we've had we've had unbelievable conversion. Hmm. Good. Well, you get, I'm excited to see the end of the month. You said right for the for the MRE, roughly speaking. If not sooner. Yeah. Excellent. All right. Okay. So, I mean, again, I mean, that's, that's big 2.5% trying to burn through here. 2.5% NR that you, NSR, pardon me, you bought back. Uh, what sort of royalties are left? I mean, obviously that's huge, right? To buy that back, that that's going to have a material impact, positive impact on your economics that were not there in the yeah. PEA. Yeah. The, I mean, and again, the market hated that I did that. You know, <laughs> it was, um, it was uh, $20 million. Um, I had a clock. So first quantum gave me a clock and said, anyway, it's a great story over a beer. I'll tell you one time. <laughs> Basically, um, we bought that uh, NSR back um, in November of 2021. That was probably one of the best moves we ever made besides selling that ground to Sayona for 50 million bucks. Um, because really we haven't done an equity raise in a very long time, um, which has facilitated all of this. We have a 1% left. That's owned by Sandstorm. Um, that was a legacy royalty that was on it. We had nothing to do with that. Um, they're not very good sellers. If the opportunity was there, I would certainly buy it back. Not, not because I wouldn't. 1% doesn't really impact this. But when you go to finance a large capital project, um, you know, my ultimate goal is going to be to limit dilution. And so you put in your project debt and then there's always an equity component. And nowadays there seems to be some kind of royalty component. Um, you know, we have copper and copper has a very different forward market where you can prepay, pre-sell, concentrate. Um, you can sell it forward and in such, and it's, it's a pretty high demand copper con. It's not incredibly high grade. It's going to be running kind of 17 to 19% copper, but it's going to have over 140 gram gold, which makes it one of the highest precious metal copper co co content copper cons out there. And so for me, that copper con provides essentially more non-dilutive financing to us ultimately when we go forward or optionality. And so... The less royalties I have now, the more royal, you know, the more I can put it back later. Um, but right now, uh, I'd love it just to stay where it is, but I don't know if that's realistic or not. Yeah, fair. And I, I'm going to, I would love to talk to you about streaming and, and philosophy behind streaming, but I think I'll pass on that. Quick, quick question on permitting, right? I mean, you're, you know, like you say, that transition into, into focus, forward focus now on actual getting to a production and construction decision. Where are you with permitting? And then maybe, you know, more practically is, you know, what's a realistic sort of time frame for, for that permitting to occur and be, be dealt with? Yeah. So we are quietly well advanced. We've been quietly going about it because of all the timelines you put out there, this is the one which is 
you know, for sure the hardest to manage. You know, we can give our best estimate. Um, we're six or seven months into it. Um, we filed our project descriptions, both at the federal and provincial level. We've had all of our criteria back for the EIA, the terms of reference. Um, we've had consultations to them as well. And um, we've contracted Stantec, working with our team, uh, and we're into full kind of EIA writing right now. And so certainly at the provincial level, we think that we will be in a very good position to have it done and to have those permits kind of flowing to us towards the end of next year. And that's what it looks like today. Uh, I'll t tomorrow I might have a different answer, but, but that's just the way kind of our industry works. But we have Jacqueline LaRue who is running that for us. She's one of the best. She's permitted multiple operations in Quebec, and she's managing this in a very systematic way. And um, again, our, our great relationships with our stakeholders, and especially with the Cree, is allowing this for a fairly um, manageable process. And so uh, we'll we'll see. But but again, we're we're quite advanced on that side. This is something we don't telegraph a lot. Sure, sure. Exciting. I have one more content question that I'll let you go here. Thank you for your patience, Justin. Uh, this is maybe an opportunity just for candor, just for you, for you to just asking you as a, as a, as a, as an investor here, but obviously a lot of macro factors that are headwinds, right? COVID. I mean, look at the last three years, COVID big, big kick in the pants, right? Forest fires just delayed you for two months, right? I mean, just catastrophic forest fires this season. Inflation has been tough. We talked about development co was being hammered by inflation. So there's lots of reasons for this the share price to sag. And I don't want companies to focus on share price too often. And as someone newer to the story, I love what's going on here. I mean, I, I'm excited by it. I mean, the share price is very, very attractive to me, but you know, you can understand that, you know, existing shareholders are a bit more maybe, maybe battle weary, right? Uh, do you just want to discuss, I mean, if, if we factor all those macro reasons in, uh, you know, and, and I think reasonable shareholders understand all those things, right? Can you just reflect, I mean, why are there doubts, are, are there doubts pertaining to the company itself being successful? And I guess maybe, you know, what is, what's the last major hurdle you see prior to being able to make a positive construction decision? Yeah, I, I think it trans it goes a little even further than that. You know, we came public, we were fighting the cryptocurrency trend. Hmm. And then, that was year one, one and a half, year two, two and a half. We were fighting the uh, cannabis trade for the marginal investor. And actually, during the whole period of the company, we actually haven't had a true solidified gold window, you mm -hmm. know. And so there's always been a lot of uh, wind in our face, if you will. But, um, uh, yeah, I mean, I think the biggest it hasn't been commodity price. Commodity price has been great. Um, I think that uh, inflation has probably been um, the big, had the biggest impact on us. Um, you know, we look at similar type of assets being built. You have Greenstone that Equinox is building right now, and it's being built by a guy named Eric Lamontang, who's on my board. He was the last superintendent of Troilus. But that's a $1.4 billion build, right? Greenfields. Um, from scratch, nothing there, but it's 35,000 tons a day at a great profile, very similar to ours. Uh, we've had nothing but cost over runs at Cote, um, which is now almost a $2 billion build. Yeah. 
38,000 tons a day. Uh, we have um, Magino at kind of 25,000 tons a day, 30,000 tons a day, which again is going to be a billion dollar bill. So I think that is very difficult when you have a low grade bulk tonnage deposit in this environment. Um, and even in the Canadian jurisdiction where we are absolutely susceptible to inflation to say, you know, this is going to you're going to have an economic return off of this. Um, you know, then I go back and I look at Greenstone. Well, Greenstone, we, we saw the first feasibility from Greenstone 12 years ago. And they're, they're, they come in different waves and cycles. And so Trills absolutely is a viable asset. I just don't know if our timing in the market has been right. And so I, I wouldn't have done anything differently because if we would have slowed down our drilling and taken the 10-year approach, you know, what are you, what are you really accomplishing? Our, our shareholders, the Quebec government is saying, how, how can we help you get there? Our, our, our institutions are investing in a developer, right? They're not investing. So we take a look back and we look at some, some I think in this market, some great successes in a bad market like Artemis. Um, uh, you know, that deposit was hated forever when I'm gold had it. Um, Stephen Dean got it. He did a great job on restructuring it. Um, he redid the feasibility, got it permitted, got it financed, and it's building. And, you know, they're between an 800 to a billion dollar company right now at something that is exactly a year and a half to kind of two and a half years ahead of Troilus. And so from my perspective, it's about making sure we don't make mistakes so we have to go backwards and just make sure that we continue down the path. And I think that re-rating is going to come. Um, I absolutely feel the pain of, of our existing shareholders. Um, you know, I look at our peer group, probably uh, of the 20 that I'm aligned with, I would say, 18 have had 52-week lows. So this is a systematic thing. Um, I take responsibility for Troilus. That's my job. But certainly the industry as a whole is not seeing new investors. We're seeing all the institutions uh, have month-over-month -month redemptions. So there's new no there's no new flow of funds coming in. We're we're dealing with the lithium trade now a little bit, which is um, which is fine. It's great for Quebec. It's great for the mining industry. But we're not seeing new capital come into the gold space. And so I think that's our next step. And if we enter a recession, and which if we're not there now, we've got to be on the doorstep. Everything I've read. I'm not an economist, but uh, certainly I, I really like where we are for the next 24 months systematically. So this right sizing of Troilus, um, not because we had to, but that was just a natural progression of what we're doing, I think puts us on really good footing. Excellent. One last question. Super simple. Six to 12 month catalyst and then failing that, just final word to you. Six to 12. So MRE on the doorstep, uh, bankable feasibility. Uh, I've been guiding to the end of the year. We did lose a little bit of time because of the forest fires for things that nobody cares about, geotech drilling. But I got to tell you, the impact on the economics going from a 45-degree slope to like a 56% degree slope has a huge positive impact. Um, if I don't, if I don't have it press releasable by December fifteenth, I'll let everybody have Christmas, and you'll see it kind of in the first couple of weeks of January. So, and we're on track to do that. Um, 
and then it's permitting, right? And then we'll we'll keep up uh, regional exploration just to make sure that um, uh, we can keep everybody focused on the benefits of the belt and the opportunities in the belt. We have Sumitomo drilling and Kenorline drilling all around us right now. We have Sayona with, uh, I think, 12 or 13 rigs around us right now. Um, and then really for us, it's about what's the next stage. And so I'm spending 70% uh, of my time on project financing now. So we are working, it takes an incredibly long time. Um, it takes over a year to put a good debt project package in place. And so, so again, it's something that is kind of the next step for me. We're always working on what's next. And, uh, and for us, that's where we are. Awesome. Well, I think we'll call it there. I thank you for your patience. We're officially over time here. Thank you, Justin, for your time. It, it was a great conversation. Troilusgold.com, super economic development story for my listeners. Go, go check it out. And yeah, Justin, thanks for your time. Thanks, man. Appreciate it. Have a good day.